Hey, podcast listeners. You listen to this show after it's been recorded each week. Well, why not get an extra bonus and listen to it while it's actually being recorded and get some questions in yourself? The Energy Gang is going to be hosting its first live event in Washington, D.C. at MDVC's Solar Focus Conference. We'll be capping the conference on the evening of November 12th with a lively discussion about the future of solar on the East Coast. For more information, go to mdvcia.org slash solarfocus2013. We'll also have a link on the podcast page. Hope you can join us for our first live show. For the week of October 11th, 2013, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, Senior Editor at Green Tech Media, podcasting from the shutdown, showdown, disaster of a town, Washington, D.C. Okay, so it's not that dramatic, at least from where I'm standing. But Catherine Hamilton, Energy Gang co-host and founder of 38 North Solutions, is also here in Washington. Surely, Catherine, you've been on Knife's Edge all week, just soaking up the political drama that's infused our city. No, it's this. It's a horrible vibe. It's like this edgy malaise. So I'm really worried because a lot of people are getting laid off. People all around me, people I know are getting laid off. Government contractors are getting laid off. And yet there's this just kind of intractable thing going on. And there's some kind of storm here that is in the in the middle of all of our, you know, complaining about it being too dry. Now we're in the middle of some kind of monsoon. So it's less like uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington or House of Cards and more like The Blob or an episode of The Muppet Babies. Uh, Jigger <laughs> Shaw, energy futurist and author of the new book, Creating Climate Wealth, is also here from New York City. Jigger, surely there's something going on in New York that can rival the circus here in D.C. I have to say that, you know, the New York City uh, po- the political scene is um, just completely tepid compared to what's happening over there in D.C., yeah, but in New York, you can just look out your window and probably see something more interesting. Oh, I love it. I have to say, I, like the last three days I've been promoting my book and, um, you know, so many like impact investor conferences and, you know, little like lunch and learns around, you know, different technologies. I just heard about a guy who's basically trying to solarize all of the food vendors in uh, in uh, Manhattan and Queens and the Bronx. And so good stuff. Indeed. Well, we're going to get away from politics today and talk about some subjects that don't get nearly as much attention, even in the renewables world, geothermal and solar thermal. In our first segment, we'll take a look at why the utility-scale geothermal industry is moving so slowly in the U.S. and around the world. Then we'll look at why the pace of solar hot water installations in the U.S. has also been crawling, plus talk about a new solar thermal roadmap designed to get them on a speedier trajectory. And finally, in the post-stimulus era, many are asking if ESCOs, energy service companies that provide performance contracts, are tapping out their resources. Well, I can tell you they're not, but they need to expand into new markets to continue raising revenues, and we'll look at what those markets are. And of course, to round out the show, we'll tell you something you do not know. All right, on to geothermal, one of the forgotten renewables, as Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz calls it. Um, Let's play a game of over-under. If either of you had to guess how many utility-scale geothermal projects came online last year and guess the cumulative capacity of those projects, what would you say? Jigger, uh, let's start with you. Zero. Catherine? Uh, 20 megawatts. No, you're both under. It was seven projects last year worth 147 megawatts. So not bad, uh, but a lot of those projects have been in the works for like four or five years, if not more. 
So just to put that in perspective, Google announced it is investing $100 million into one solar PV project in southeastern California worth 265 megawatts. One project with more capacity than all geothermal projects put online in 2012, built in about a year and a half. Now, I don't want to get carried away with solar because we all know that solar PV and geothermal have completely different generation profiles. Um, and, you know, geothermal ge- generates virtually constant electricity and, and it's been competitive in price for years. But as anyone in the business will tell you, it's not the price of electricity that's the problem for geothermal. It's finding the resource and the money to actually get drilling operations started. It is absolutely difficult for developers to secure the funding for the drilling part of, of, of development. That's Alexander Richter, an Icelandic geothermal expert who runs the site thinkgeoenergy.com, and he consults for geothermal companies. Uh, I want to run a couple clips from my interview with Richter before we get started because he describes why a technology like solar PV, for example, is getting so much more attention. It's all about risk. I mean, there are different investment opportunities right now with less risk. And that's naturally where the the investors are flocking to. So geothermal is in that sense kind of at a big disadvantage because it has that drilling risk. And the drilling risk essentially is 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 these three main elements: is finding water, uh, finding sufficient temperature, and 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 thirdly finding you know enough of the water that you would need to run a power plant. So what we call the flow rates. Uh, so that's these three three elements is is is, is a main risk. So for investors, basically, if you if you invest in the in the earlier stages of development, basically when you start drilling, until that point you have not proven the resource, so you have no guarantee that your project will come out with this 10, 20, 30 megawatt uh, uh, that 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 you might aim for. So you might not have sufficient water, uh, you might have the temperature, but you don't have any water. Uh, so it's it's very very tricky, and 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 that naturally kind of to to estimate beforehand before you drill is very difficult. One of the big problems in America, says Richter, is that we're so focused on either R and D or on a mechanism like the production tax credit that we haven't done nearly enough to address this drilling risk component. So one of the things that that one always argued in the in the U.S. is that uh, instead of of putting money uh, into future R and D projects. Uh, probably as part of the stimulus package, kind of there should have been some kind of drilling program because that is that is holding back because geothermal is is a very competitive energy source for the U.S. Uh, but uh, the key thing is it's just it doesn't get over the drilling hurdle. So that, in a nutshell, is why geothermal is moving so slowly in the U.S. and in most places around the world. So let's get the gang's opinion on this, uh, Catherine. Let's look at this risk issue and other issues from a policy perspective. Um, do you hear from anyone in the industry that we're approaching this wrong when we consider the risk issue in geothermal? Well, it just seems that geothermal has kind of been the stepchild in the whole renewable context of renewable. So, you know, it just doesn't seem, at least to, you know, publicly, that it's changed that much over the last twenty years. It sort of incrementally grows a little bit every year, and yet, you know, it should be one of the big ones because it does more than a lot of other, you know, than wind and solar can do. And yet, they get so much more of the press. They get the national centers. There is no national geothermal center. Um, this this should get a lot more publicity, but it's really kind of been like the stepchild. And I don't know if it's because 
um, you know, policymakers don't see it as, as as exciting or sexy as wind and solar, or 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 if it's the industry's fault for not actually moving it out more into the policy debate. Well, let's talk about this from a financing perspective because that's really where the risk issue is is most prominent. Jigger, um, one of the reasons why solar is so exciting right now is because you have a lot of the suits coming into the industry, and you still don't have a lot of them in geothermal right now. So what do investment types you speak with think about the inherent risk in geothermal and about the opportunity in general? I don't think that anyone has a problem with geothermal. I think everyone loves it, particularly like Karen Armstrong, I think, just funded a big geothermal project in California. But I think the real problem with geothermal is that uh, it takes so long to get a geothermal project ready for investors to really review, and it's very institutional. Yeah, and what's remarkable is that between 20% and two-thirds of a project's cost can come through just drilling alone. And uh, very often you're not finding the resource. So uh, resources are more limited than, say, oil and gas reserves. They can be more concentrated, and uh, it, it can be much, much riskier taking a look down below to find hot water that they need to run a project. So Yeah, and I would think that they would, if you're going to invest in horizontal drilling, all these oil and gas type technologies, that you're just going to go ahead and look for oil and gas. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the oil and gas is much more tied to a commodity market, and they can much more accurately assess the value of those wells. So... That is a major factor. Well, that is a big problem now. I mean, geothermal, you know, companies have a hard time getting rigs to do the drilling because they're already fully booked up. I'm hearing now that they are starting to get some rigs. Back in 2008 to 2010, they had a major problem getting rigs. And I'm starting to hear that that drilling activity is picking up, or at least more rigs are becoming available and crossing over from the oil and gas industry. But yeah, that's definitely a factor. Have any of you guys been to any geothermal conferences recently and just taken a look at the crowd? Not a conference, but I went to an investor summit that had a panel on geothermal and had Ormat and a few other folks on the panel. And I mean, it was quite interesting. Honestly, there are some really smart people who've raised a, a lot of money to go after geothermal. But the thing that I was struck by was that they really are looking for these big sort of $500 million, billion dollar projects, um, that the amount of enthusiasm around the enhanced uh, recovery stuff that Google was going after has seems to be gone. I mean, there just seems to be no interest whatsoever on that stuff now. Well, that was part of Google's effort to get out of R&D in the first place, and they dropped their investment in eSolar, the, the concentrating solar power developer, at the same time. So, yes, geothermal was a challenge for Google, but I don't think that that was – it was just geothermal. It was that they wanted to get into renewables procurement in, at commercial stage rather than just fund uh, a bunch of uh, infrastructure – heavy uh, research and development projects. With that said, EGS has been making more strides than than people think. I mean, Ormat actually just connected the first commercial scale EGS project this year. And instead of developing this massive multi-megawatt project that we think about when we think about enhanced geothermal, which for people who may not know, is uh, stimulating cracks in rock, drilling down maybe a mile beneath the earth, stimulating cracks, and then creating artificial wells by pumping water down and then uh, heating it up and pumping it back to run a steam generator. So that's the basic concept of EGS. And there are 
different ways of going about it. But what ORMAT is doing is uh, using these drilling techniques to re-stimulate wells uh, where they may be declining and um, bringing more water up through these wells. So they actually had this uh, project that they worked on in Nevada, in Desert Peak, Nevada, and, and increased output by 38% by using these EGS drilling techniques. And in Australia, we've seen, you know, a one megawatt plant come online. We've seen other smaller projects. So I don't think your assessment is right that EGS is dead uh, and that we're not seeing movement. It's just that we're seeing smaller projects and then the scale that people imagined when they talked about EGS is not there yet. Right. So let's say it a different way, right? You have three different types of geothermal, maybe many more, but you have the very large plants that we've been doing You've got this EGS sector, which is emerging and interesting. And then you have the just geothermal, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, heat pumps that people do at homes, like Water Furnace and all of those folks, um, which, you know, has been growing steadily, I think, for many, many years. Um, and all I'm saying is that when I look at the data now, it doesn't appear to me that even the Geothermal Energy Association is saying that we are going to meet a tremendous amount of our renewable portfolio standard requirements or other climate change requirements through EGS. Yeah, I think it comes back to this risk issue, though. But beyond that, and the, the Geothermal Energy Association has admitted this. They admitted this at a recent conference. The industry just has not done a good job marketing itself talking to utilities and talking about different benefits it provides. They always talk about themselves as a baseload source, but now they're starting to characterize themselves as a grid balancing technology because these plants, these traditional hydrothermal plants can ramp up and down quickly. They have very little lobbying presence in Washington. And if you go to these conferences, which is one of the reasons why I asked if you had been to any of these conferences, it's such an insulated industry. I'm not criticizing the people who are there. I'm just saying that it's a lot of older white males who have been in the industry for a long time. And it sort of feels like the utility industry feels where there's just not a lot of enthusiasm and, and energy coming out. So, um, again, I don't want to criticize the industry too heavily, but it's very clear that, that they're very insulated and, and don't have that power to uh, to bring to Washington to kind of boost their cause. Yeah, Stephen, I was on their press call that they had during their conference, and so I couldn't go to the conference, but I listened in on the press call. And it was interesting because all the guys from the industry were basically saying what you just said, which is, look, we've done a terrible job educating Washington and the world at large. There's a huge misunderstanding of the true value of all these different benefits that geothermal brings. Um, but they said, look, we have to have this included in the fuel mix because of climate change. So we have to figure this out. Look, I agree with you, but but at the same time, Steve and I disagree on your point. Is I blame them fully, and I'm when we talked about solar thermal, I'm going to blame them even more. You know, the notion that when I entered the solar PV industry in 1995, that we had this whole thing figured out is ridiculous. SIA was basically bankrupt in 2003 when six folks came together and restarted SIA. So this is about folks deciding that they actually want to make this happen. And I do think that ORMAT has basically, you know, decided to figure out where the pockets of profit are, like the Kenya geothermal exploration and some of these enhanced geothermal projects. But in terms of standing up an industry, there aren't that many people who are actually investing to stand up an industry. All right. So kind of walk me through this. How would you apply that lesson from solar PV 
the marketing prowess, the entrepreneurial people coming in and influencing the messaging. How would you apply that to geothermal specifically? Like, give me a sense for what that actually meant on the ground as people were making it happen. Yeah, well, the first thing we did was we actually made sure there was a core group of companies who came together as equals to fund a full-time person that actually, um, you know, ran the trade association, which is what, and we hired Ron Resch. The second thing we did was made sure there were a lot more women and minorities in solar, because frankly, women and minorities actually bring some of this outside thinking that you're talking about around what it requires to actually make the case to RPSs, to legislators, to all of these other people that matter. And then the third thing we did, which I think is really important, is we figured out where our best value was. Where was the best value for our technology? It seems like Geothermal only now is thinking that load balancing is their best value as opposed to base load. And I'm not even sure that I've seen the numbers to prove that that's a very compelling rate of return. But we'll see. But I think that they actually – we have done our part by grandfathering them into all of the policy battles that we actually fought for them. But now they actually have to stand on their own two feet and make a convincing case to investors and to women and minorities to actually join them. Yeah, but Jigger, you can get so many more disaggregated systems with solar than you can with geothermal. Geothermal has these massive plants for the most part, and you can't have, you know, there's not a group like Solar Sister that's going to take on geothermal in developing countries. I mean, it's just, it's a, I feel like it's a totally different set of technologies um, with completely different issues that, that you're dealing with. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, but ultimately, it's their responsibility to prove to us that they're actually worth paying attention to. And it's the same exact conversation we had with Bloom, right? The the other the other episode is that it's not my responsibility to say, well, because of the spreadsheet analysis that I did that shows that geothermal is necessary to defeat climate change, that I should drag them up by their bootstraps. What's really important in this conversation is to note that there is not a lot of technology risk when it comes to actually building out the power plant after the resource has been found. When you look at the LCOE of geothermal compared to solar, I mean, you're looking at an average of $0.08 cents per kilowatt hour, according to the EIA, and about $0.14 cents per kilowatt hour, according to the EIA. Um, so where these projects make sense, I mean, they are very, very cost-effective and providing consistent generation. And the technologies are continuing to evolve. I mean, when you look at the low temperature uh, binary cycle technologies, you've got companies like Mitsubishi buying up Pratt & Whitney, um, Ormat, which has been in the industry for a long time, continuing to innovate and in, in developing uh, new units, uh, Electrotherm, which is a small player, uh, this, this Iceland company, G Green Energy Group. Um, you know, these modular plants that can potentially be built a lot faster, there's, there is technology innovation happening, but there's this real lack of marketing. So I do agree with you, Jigger, uh, both f from a policy perspective and financial perspective, that the messaging is just not getting out there. I want to make that clear to people out there that there is a real compelling technology case here to be made. And the risks after you've done much of the exploration are uh, fairly low comparative to the initial upfront risks. Yeah, I feel like um, I don't, I'm not an expert on risk at all, but I do feel like geothermal is one of those resources that, sh that doesn't have um, 
sort of a visceral response from either party um, politically and and so sort of in developing policy I feel like it should be one of those that everybody embraces but like Jigger said I just don't think that they've really made that much of a push now they're in the room when the solar and the wind and all those guys are trying to negotiate RPSs and all that but I I feel like there's they're a little bit thought of as a little more marginal when they really should have a major seat at the table well let me give them one piece of unsolicited advice here which is that when you think about what really matters in geothermal, it's the drilling costs, as you said, Stephen. And so the oil and gas industry have a fantastic way of solving that problem, which is that you get 100% of your drilling costs you know, back in tax credits, which are, oh, by the way, like actually not subject to the active-passive loss rules either. Um, so why not actually add geothermal to the list of technologies that benefit from the intangible drilling credit? Well, if any geothermal companies out there need any PR uh, consulting business, the Energy Gang is happy to help. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap up there and move on to forgotten renewable number two, solar thermal. No, we're not talking about concentrating solar power, but solar hot water. So when we talk about natural gas prices hurting renewables, we often think about electricity production. But as it turns out, um, gas is hindering the thermal side, where low prices are making solar hot water a harder sell, uh, particularly as gas water heaters get more efficient. So, Jigger, uh, you have investments in solar hot water. You've talked about this company, Skyline Innovations, that you've invested in um, with an office here in D.C., actually, which has developed this third-party financed power purchase agreement uh, for BTUs. So as you look at what this company is trying to do, what are the biggest challenges in the industry that it's trying to address? You know, I think you're absolutely right. Natural gas is not a bad form of energy for heating water. It's actually pretty good uh, for heating water as well as providing other things. What's not good for heating water is electricity or fuel oil. And when you look around the country, a very substantial point uh, a, a very substantial amount of buildings and households are using expensive fuels like electricity and fuel oil for heating water. And it's amazing to me that I have yet to find a single person that can tell me where these people live and what the map looks like and how to actually find out how to market to them. Yeah. According to this industry roadmap that was just put out last week by the Solar Energy Industries Association, the uh, solar thermal equivalent is around six cents per kilowatt hour. And so that's really cost effective in places that rely on oil for heating, you know, which is a lot of the northeast. Um, but they point out that there's this this ceiling in that. 50% of the U.S. water heating market is natural gas. And, you know, right now with natural gas at the way it is, it's around $0.04 cents per kilowatt hour equivalent. So there are some major challenges right now. But that means that the other 50% is actually paying much higher prices um, using the water with electricity. Yeah. I, it just seems odd to me that when you think about what we're doing in the solar PV space, which is you know doing all this innovative marketing, that we really can't seem to get that level of dedication out of the solar hot water industry. Yeah, and we don't see uh, things like the Sunshot Initiative for solar hot water. I went back onto the NREL website to look and see what their solar program looked like. And the solar hot water program is just like this little tiny mention. You know, it's not part of the big initiative. You know, it's just 
um, it, it's another one of these little stepchildren out there that I think has had to struggle on its own. And I was just looking uh, at the Skyline Innovations, and it looks really cool. And it looks like they're addressing a market, the multifamily market, that is really, really important because there are not that many other uh, technology. I mean, it seems like that is a good space for them to be in. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that Skyline Innovations did firsthand, which or uh, first thing, which Sun Edison did as well, is that Mike Healy, who's one of the co-founders of Skyline, does nothing but policy, right? I mean, he really systematically helped the PV industry in Maryland get the incremental fix on the PV side, while at the same time including solar thermal now in being able to get the same SREX in Maryland, has done the same thing in D.C. with the sustainable energy utility and is now working tirelessly with Tom Steyer to do um, those things in Virginia. And so my sense is, is that because they're focused so much on policy, they're actually getting solar water heating written into the policy, whereas before the PV guys were expected to carry their water, no pun intended. Going back to your point, Catherine, about the SunShot initiative not including solar thermal like they do solar PV. It's interesting that the SunShot initiative changed its focus to things like permitting and deployment programs that could lower the installed cost of PV, not necessarily massive technology innovations uh, upstream. And what's interesting is that in the solar thermal market, we're seeing the same issues that we see or saw in solar PV, and that is the lack of standards, um, ununiform uh, building codes, um, we see really limited distribution channels because companies are very small and they're not coordinated in the same way. So these are a lot of issues, market-based issues that policymakers really could help work on. And it just doesn't seem like we have that priority there like we do with solar PV, for example. Yeah. And I feel like if they join for- forces with some of those solar PV rooftop guys, that that will be super helpful because th- those folks are fighting against the soft cost issue and trying to bring those down. So do you ever see a solar city jigger that is now getting into energy efficiency, or I should say got into energy efficiency, scaled back, but is now working with contractors to deploy energy efficiency? Do you ever see them getting into solar hot water in a big way if this power purchase agreement or BTU purchase agreement can work? Yeah, no, I think that I think that is going to happen. But I do think it's important to note that DOE plays a big role here in agenda setting. You know, when Arun uh, Majumdar and I, you know, met frequently around the Sunshine Initiative, I told him that the dollar a watt goal just was awful and that I was going to eviscerate him about it. And I did. I was I was scathing in my remarks around it. And hopefully I had some influence in getting them to do finance and some of the soft cost work, which they originally didn't fund, by the way. That was a last minute change because we were so negative about the dollar a watt technology goal. And so I just think that part of what we need is DOE saying, yes, these um, third party ownership models would work in unlocking this six cent per kilowatt hour power. It's it's good that SIA has started the process, but DOE has to validate it. Okay, on to our final topic, uh, energy services companies, which are known as ESCOs. The U.S. energy efficiency industry has been boosted by ESCOs, which provide energy performance contracts that allow customers to pay back a retrofit with energy savings, a pretty simple concept. Consumers have responded over the years, Industry revenues have grown from about $500 million in 1990 to about $13 billion this year. 
but as two new reports point out, one from the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and one from Navigant Research, ESCOs will need to break into new markets to continue building projects and expanding revenues, particularly as stimulus funding evaporates for efficiency. So what's it going to take? Uh, firstly, let's get the gang's assessment of the value of ESCOs. Uh, Jigger, what's your impression on how effective this industry has been at deploying efficiency? Well, I think it's really important um, to understand the nuances of the financing that they're doing. Um, when you think about what Sun Edison did for Walmart and others, these are off-balance sheet financing mechanisms. Um, what the ESCOs do are not off-balance sheet. ESCOs actually are basically providing loans to folks to be able to do uh, solar, or sorry, to do energy efficiency, and then they're providing a warranty separately to say, well, if the the energy efficiency measures don't provide the savings necessary, we'll um, pay you a penalty. And that's why they almost entirely work in the mush space. That's so right. So municipalities, utilities, schools, or sorry, universities, schools, and uh, hospitals. And that's just because no commercial customer worth their salt wants to put this stuff on their balance sheet. And so it's important to note that Johnson Controls last year, less than 1% of their ESCO business was commercial. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, only 8% of industry-wide revenues are in the commercial market. And that's because these ESCOs can take advantage of the the tax-exempt bonds to finance these energy efficiency investments. And the public buildings that they're developing these projects on uh, are able to take on a much longer payback period, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, whereas a commercial building, a commercial building operator is looking at five years or so. So it definitely a much different market. Yeah, no, I but- just talked to a friend of mine in New York City, and Jigger, I have another friend other than you in New York City. She was a former, <laughs> uh, a former Good Energies colleague, and she she works on adoption of energy efficiency in you know buildings in New York City. And she said, quite honestly, energy efficiency is the least important thing on their list. When energy costs them five dollars a square foot, and they're paying one hundred and seventy dollars a square foot for everything else, the you know saying I'll lower your energy cost by a dollar a square foot foot just does not even count at all she says it is so hard to get adoption yeah and i think i mean i think just even from what you were saying though before it's important to note that it's not the payback it really is all about the financing and so what you see is um companies like building iq for instance um just got money from siemens alstom and schneider electric all three competitors to each other um around doing continuous commissioning and what you're going to see i think over the next 10 years is that people are going to disaggregate energy efficiency into its component parts and different pieces of the energy efficiency landscape are going to figure out this financing which building iq is doing software as a service and so it's basically you just pay monthly and there is no um capital cost uh, but there are others like boiler um, uh, boiler manufacturers doing cogeneration who are actually looking at doing 15-year financings and the commercial customers are okay with doing it they just aren't okay with esco contracts so you you think that rather than having an esco come in and install a massive project and try to guarantee the savings that it's going to be more incremental when it comes to actual technology deployment is that what i'm hearing you saying and it's going to be five times larger than the ESCO business has ever penetrated. I mean, I think that, you know, when you think – so the volume of energy efficiency we're going to do in buildings will be far higher than we have been doing. So I think this is going to be a huge success story. It's just not going to happen through ESCOs. Well, the in the Federal Energy Management Program, a huge piece of what – and I used to work 
in the in the FEMP program in the mid '90s, a big piece of what they're finding success in is with utility energy service companies. So the utilities then would contract out with ESCOs, but the but the federal buildings can then contract through their utilities, and often that's an easier relationship. Yeah, and speaking of federal buildings, I mean this is the primary market for ESCOs. What are you seeing there, Catherine? A lot more procurement under the Better Buildings Initiative. Yeah. So when I was working in FEMP in the mid 90s, you know, the ESCOs were doing a lot of work, but it was really just the low hanging fruit. It was really just lighting replacements. And of course, those lights are now 20 years old. They have to do new ones and they have to do LEDs. So I and and part of the huge issue was getting into new technologies and renewables, especially it was really difficult to do because you would have to force them to bundle technologies um, and include the lighting or anything that the stuff that was cheaper um, in the mix. And I think that they're going to have to go to this sort of next generation and try to build, do much more bundling of technologies than they were able to get away with. Yeah, and this Lawrence Berkeley National Lab report recommends them um, going into water savings, um, potentially bundling more distributed energy technologies, which makes the the prospects much more complicated. Um, and then also, you know, going back to your comments about utilities, utility activity, we are seeing some movement on on-bill repayment programs and on-bill utility financing in which the customer can just pay back the project through their utility bill rather than some other arrangement. So ESCOs may be able to find some good leverage there as well. But when you talk to, I've talked to four ESCOs in the past few weeks all four of them basically believe that the Obama administration is going to use the $2 billion number from the better buildings as a ceiling and not a floor. They, they see absolutely no interest from the Obama administration at all at pushing the super ESPC contracts um, to utilize the full $80 billion worth of capacity that's already been awarded to 16 players. Yeah. I mean, so as the largest owner of buildings in the country, the federal procurement is extremely important. But this is exactly what we're talking about. They need to get into the commercial sector. They need to find innovative ways to do that. So, Yeah, but Stephen, even in the federal sector, honestly, Jigger, just to get all of the the folks who run those facilities to sign performance contracts, I mean, they're like, they're not getting there yet. So they, I think there's a lot of room for growth with ESCOs in, in the um, federal building sector still. Okay, excellent. Well, let's finish off the show and tell our listeners something they don't know. Uh, Catherine, let's start off with you. Sure. So every uh, energy wonk in the world knows that Heather Zeichel, uh, President Obama's climate advisor, announced that she's leaving um, after many years, the entire his entire administration being the sort of the lead on climate and, and shepherding his climate plan through. And now the big talk is who is going to replace her and sort of this, is it going to be somebody with a big name or is it going to be somebody who can now just get this, you know, climate plan done? So some of the, some of the talk is around her deputy Dan Utech, who's a who's been, you know, they characterize him as a bureaucrat who can like keep the trains running and make sure things get done, um, because really everything's going to be done pretty much at EPA. Or would it be somebody like Bob Simon, who's at the Office of Science and Technology Policy, who came out of Senator Bingaman's shop, was the um, staff director for Senate Energy, spent a long time running committees and understands how to you know move things as well. Um, I actually would like to bring up someone. I don't know if this person's even being considered, but Rick Duke, who's the associate director uh, for energy and climate in, in CEQ, was the deputy assistant and secretary at DOE for climate policy, worked for NRDC. I don't know. It seems sort of an interesting option um, out there, but maybe you guys have some ideas too. Ron oh, I Bins. Think, 
For well, anyone I, I, who didn't listen last week, Ron Bins was the nominee for FERC who uh, got railed off by Republicans. So that's why I mentioned his name. But, you know, honestly, Catherine, on this on this choice, I do think this is a hugely important choice for the clean tech industry. And my sense is that we really should actually be lobbying much harder than we are for the right person. And if Dan Utech gets a job, and I, I mean, I've met Dan, he's a nice guy, but I mean, then that's sending a major signal to the marketplace around how little this White House cares about our, our industry. Jigger, what do you have? Tell us something we don't know. Well, you know, I've been on this uh, book tour. It was really interesting. Yesterday, uh, I was speaking to a conference of diversity and inclusiveness. And what's extraordinary to me is that they have included uh, green as part of their mission now. Because what they were saying was that, in fact, um, green initiatives have um, disproportionately helped minority communities because those are the people who are disproportionately affected by um, externalities from coal and oil and those kind of things. And on top of that, it turns out that green initiatives are most supported by um, you know, women and minorities in companies more so than than white men. And so the green has come into the uh, diversity and inclusiveness uh, community, which I think is pretty damn cool. Yeah, That's that- awesome because I'm so tired of hearing that only rich white people have solar. That's great, Jigger. Yeah, on the other end of this too, you see a lot of Native Americans and uh, African Americans and, and other minorities in inner city areas with coal plants next to them become a major active part of the effort to shut down the dirtiest coal plants. So on both ends of the spectrum, I think we see more participation. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about that. Well, yesterday I was at the Clean Tech Global 100 conference here in D.C., and I met up with a guy named Adrian Tuck who a lot of people know as the founder and CEO of the home energy management company Tendril. So that's a company that does what a lot of other home energy management companies do, does. It crunches data about customers and helps those customers save energy. So Tendril was one of the first movers in this space. And last year, after a long period of growth due to stimulus funding, um, Tuck decided that his company was on a pretty unsustainable path. So they had like 50, 55 utility customers, and most of those customers were experimenting through pilots supported by the stimulus. And he was going into this board meeting, he described to me, and the night before, he took a look at the trajectory and saw that it was just a total dead end in terms of revenue um, because they were just supporting so many pilots and there weren't revenue opportunities after those pilots. So things were looking great on the surface. You know, the company was headed for an IPO, but he just knew it was a dead end and he didn't want to end up like so many other clean tech companies were ending up at that time. So he. described how he crafted this plan to get lean and he pitched it to his board thinking he was probably going to get fired, but they accepted the plan. And last year, the company had to shed a lot of customers. It transitioned out of the hardware game um, and it had to lose a lot of employees, which was kind of sad. But a year later, he described that he said the company's profitable. They have over 5 million customers now and it's rehiring. So my point here is not to talk up this one company, but I was just so refreshed and impressed with uh, Adrian's ability to be brutally honest about the choices he had to make and about the mistakes he made. And I just don't think you get it a lot in this business, particularly as we see so many failures. So uh, I'm going to publish a Q&A with Adrian next week on Green Tech Media, and he'll 
kind of fleshed out that experience and I want people to check that out because uh, he provides some valuable advice for entrepreneurs to keep in mind, which is basically stay humble and honest. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Hey, Stephen, just a shameless plug. Um, I'm going to be at Solar Power International um, and um, and signing a lot of books there. So um, if folks are at Solar Power International, October 19th through the 24th in Chicago, let me know. Excellent. Yeah, please go check it out. And of course, uh, some members of our editorial team and GTM Research will be there as well. So that's going to mark the end of this week's show. For links to some of the stories and reports that we talked about, check out the Energy Gang page on greentechmedia.com. You can subscribe to this podcast in any number of ways through our RSS feed, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Uh, Also see the website for links to those. And remember that we're going to be hosting our first live Energy Gang at the MDVCS Solar Focus Conference here in D.C. on November 12th. For more information on that, go to mdvsia.org. That's mdvsia.org slash solarfocus2013. Okay, time to say goodbye. Jigger, good conversation today. Always a pleasure. And Catherine, same to you. Enjoy your weekend. Yeah, thanks. It's a long one, even though I think Columbus is absolutely not worthy of a holiday. (laughs) Well, I'll be traveling on that day. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next time.